Hello everyone, this is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, These Rogues and Renegades. Uh, today we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. ended up getting in a bit of trouble a few days ago oh do tell uh i was i was out doing uh food pickups and i was at the five guys at the waterworks and you know i'm going in to pick up somebody's overcooked burger and listen they're just well done they're not overcooked they're still juicy they're just thirty (laughs) dollars and i'm i'm standing there and i walk in and the over on on the ambient music is playing uh, cashmere by led zeppelin i thought it was going to be like mariah carey I thought you were just going to get all I want for Christmas. Don't don't bury the lead. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, I'm standing there. I'm waiting because you will, as an Uber Eats driver, you will never show up to a Five Guys and your order will be ready. It's death, no, taxes, never. and that as the three certainties in life. And so I walk in and, it's, you know, I'm kind of jamming, waiting for this order to get called. And then it stops. And then... Oh, it I did don't happen. want a lot for Christmas, and it's just like, oh. and <laughs> we're in a family, we're in a family establishment, and of course, Muggins here just turns up, looks at the speaker, and goes, "Oh, fuck off!" <laughs> and everybody just turns and looks at me. So it's safe to say that I'm in the Christmas spirit. Uh, we've already established that I, who I think we would probably vote as the least likely to enjoy kitschy Christmas shit. Loves all the weird, kitschy Christmas yeah. shit. I love the tacky shit. I listen to the like the radio stations to just play Christmas music. Of, of all of us, I just bought a new Christmas album today. Yeah, you are the closest to properly being a right jolly old elf. But right. Compared to the rest of us, it, yeah, I I believe that Christmas music should be legal three days a year. I worked <laughs> I worked retail for ten years. Yeah. That 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 just those those songs are the the bell that tolls the end of my days see this is the thing now kyle i have a question for retail because like i work in restaurants so we don't have it quite as bad in restaurants like christmas music is realistically it's played like three days a year Mm -hmm. and even then it's just kind of like interspersed in our playlist does it piss you off or are you just numb to it um uh, the first week it would piss me off so we would come in on thanksgiving day and the music would be changed over to christmas and it would just be the same. I mean, now it's th- now it's Halloween yeah. that it's all. Yeah, all so you don't even so. get your Thanksgiving, but because you're working on Thanksgiving, yeah. then they're already ramming Christmas down your head. I, I was also the... under the assumption that we as a society had all decided that Christmas lights go up the day after Thanksgiving. For as long as I can remember, that was a thing. And now, like, I some houses in my neighborhood for trick-or-treat had Christmas decorations up. Yeah. It's, <laughs> what the hell is going on? Maybe maybe it's something to do with the pandemic, but like, I, I here's the thing. I can live with people putting their decorations up the day after Thanksgiving because mm-hmm. most people have the day off. You take advantage of the day off. And you right. Know, yeah. That's just what we do. Fair enough. It makes sense to me. I, I, I haven't put up a single Christmas decoration in my place since ever, but... I have multiple Christmas trees. They're not all up yet. I have one tree, but I only put it up because it's white, and I load it with Star Wars ornaments. Oh, you see all my Star Wars ornaments? I, I bought everybody out of all the but Baby Yoda ornaments. If, but if oh, I'm, I haven't but gotten if I'm, any yet. Oh, but if good. I'm driving through a good neighborhood news. on November 2nd, and I see that someone has a metric shit ton of Christmas lights up, the only thing I wish for is a Molotov cocktail in my hand. <laughs> yeah, I just put my lights up uh, 
like maybe a week ago. What what's today's date? Twelve uh, six. So I, about a week ago, maybe a week and change. I was at least three weeks later than everyone else. Wow. I think everyone's just bored looking for something to do. I guess so. Yeah. I hope that's what it is. Everybody's enjoying their last Christmas with Grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of three uh, vulnerable old men, welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And I'm Kyle Graper. Uh, sadly, we could not be joined today by uh, Michael Arnett. Rob uh, burned his house down because he put up his Christmas lights. So it's, he's dealing with insurance. I'll, I'll, I'll send him an edible arrangement later. It'll be, it'll be fine. <laughs> well, uh, you better get it in the mail now because they already said if you don't get your shit in the mail next week, you ain't getting it for yeah, Christmas. Yeah, you're not getting it for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah, so uh, today we are talking about a, uh, a gentleman. We're, we're, we're kicking it back to our nautical roots. Uh, we are talking about a gentleman named Henry Hudson. Yeah, we, we're really getting back to our roots with this one. This is we even are. before like Golden Age of Sail. Mm-hmm. This is this is where we have to go digging for weird shit because mm-hmm. like no record of this man exists before he did something <laughs> important historically. Yeah, so Henry Hudson was an early 17th century English explorer, navigator, trader, and some would say pirate, who is as famous for his uncovering to European eyes of much of the Northeast Atlantic seaboard in Canada as he is for his prickish ways and his final fast downfall and disappearance. And for his big frilly collar and all those pictures. <laughs> yes. Okay, Did you do you know how much uh, fabric it took to go into Queen Elizabeth's big uh, starched um, It has collars? to be an unbelievable amount. So I know the exact number, but I'll let you do this one. <laughs> <laughs> He's uh, been watching The Crown a lot. He's now <laughs> Crown cosplaying. That's the wrong Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> I think it's something like 230 yards. Good God. Holy shit. Yeah. But, I mean, you got to figure this thing is... What do you think the diameter of it is? I mean, three, four feet? Well, so what happens is if if she's traveling by boat and the sails get torn, they pack it that way so she can unstitch it and then they have another sail. Well, no, contrary to popular belief, uh, it's actually because she can unfurl it at predators whenever she's threatened. (laughs) Yes. Oh, she was the one who got Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. Correct. I see. Uh, you may also remember Henry Hudson from looking entirely different from all of the photos, or not all the photos, but all of the portraits uh, that are made from him, and you could tell which ones he paid for. Yes. <laughs> Any of him with, like, rugged cheekbones, <laughs> like like a thin, tall man? Yeah. Nah, they don't all look like that. No, that was that was paid for with Henry Hudson's cash. Right. His full head of hair. Yeah. So, uh, before we go into the story today, let's talk about our sources. Uh, our primary sources today are Half Moon, Henry Hudson and the Voyage that Redrew the Map of the New World by Douglas Hunter, and Fatal Journey, a tale of mutiny and murder in the Arctic. Uh, the Douglas Hunter book is a very, very comprehensive breaking down of not only the journey that Hudson is most famous for, but pretty much everything else that happened in that area in the Age of Exploration. Mm-hmm. Um if you're fascinated by this kind of stuff, like like the three of us are, I definitely recommend it. If you, it, it's I, a, I kind of assume that most of you are if you're still listening. Yes. It's a little on the dry. Well, that's why they come to a podcast, because you get in and out in an hour and you get the story. Right. If you want to go a little more in depth, I recommend this book. It's a little on the dry side if you're not a big fan of history like I am. Uh, and then Fatal Journey is a little bit on of the opposite. Uh, it seems to play a little bit fast and loose with the facts. Uh, so everything that you read about in that book, you kind of have to double check against other sources if you want to make an accurate report of things. But it is a very entertaining read. And it, it and Peter Mancall tries to kind of work 
quite a bit of suspense into it, and it's like, I don't know if you could be suspenseful about events that happened over four centuries ago. Right. Not At least not in a literary format. So, gentlemen, any points of order before we uh, before we begin our story about it? Uh, it turns out uh, marinersmuseum.org is absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I like to think that I have reached, you know, like kind of the, the peak, like dorky podcaster thing, because I ended up in an age of exploration dot uh, org rabbit hole. And started learning all kinds of interesting facts that had nothing to do with Henry Hudson. <laughs> but again, that's uh, brought to us by our good friends at the Mariners Museum and Park, and you are welcome to donate on that site. Where are they located? It... You know what, man? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> our good, good friends. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I, I have no idea. I could, prob- oh. I could find that by the end of the episode, I'm sure. That works. Uh, only because in their like, home and contact us, it's all distance learning. So wherever it is, I assume it's closed. Yes. <laughs> Yes. All right. So, shall we begin, gentlemen? All right. So, for today's story, we're going to cast our gaze back to the Age of Exploration, also known as the Age of Discovery. That period of a couple centuries following the cultural onslaught of the Renaissance that sent brave men from all of Europe's powers in wooden ships out across the world. Primarily, these men were looking for one thing, an easy way to access the mineral wealth and spices of the Pacific. And who, who among us is not? Mm. I, I, know that, <laughs> I know that I have to speak to my spice merchant anytime <laughs> I want cloves or mace or allspice, and it costs me a king's ransom, I tell you. He who you know I have a spice, spice merchant? <laughs> 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 yeah, I've been, uh, so again, uh, I've been quarantined. Most people are like starting sourdough bread and shit. I'm just making cocktail ingredients. Yeah. So I, I found a couple places that I'm just buying like weird shit from. And it turns out everything you need to make bitters is stupid expensive. So just buy it at the store because it's better than what I make. <laughs> so oh, if anybody wants an ass load of uh, pressed orange juice, I probably still have some because I needed a pound of orange peels. <laughs> now up to this point, you could find goods like cinnamon, pepper, cloves, mace, silks, rubies, and sapphires, but the prices were exorbitant, and the goods having had to travel bit by bit across routes like the Silk Road from China to the Middle East, or the sea trade routes through the Indian Ocean. Either way, lots of stops and middlemen made the prices too much for emergent European powers to pay to satisfy the growing demand for these goods. Thus, starting in the late 15th century, explorers set out to find more direct routes so as to cut out these middlemen and establish their own independent trade routes. Now, by the time of our story, exploration and colonization had boomed. Spain and Portugal were the masters of the New World. The, Venetian and the uh, Venetians and the Ottomans had the trade from the Middle East on lock, and everyone else was trying to play catch-up. But for groups like the English and the Dutch that set out to go and sail to the anchorages in Asia and East Indies where they could grab those still atrociously valuable spices, gems, and textiles, this laid out a real problem. How to get there without handing richly laden ships full of valuable cargo to enemy states. Couldn't go around South America and then cross the Pacific because the Spanish were the masters of almost that entire continent, not to mention they'd set up shop in the Philippines as well. Going around Africa and the Cape of Good Hope and coming across from the West wasn't exactly an appealing idea either, as the Portuguese had bases up and down both coasts of most of the African continent, as well as posts all around the rest of the rim of the Indian Ocean. So, finding other trade routes became a major focus. Now, the English, the Dutch, the Swedes, the Danes, these people are no slouches when it comes to jumping in a ship and sailing a fair old distance. 
These Northern English, uh, these Northern European nations had spent centuries venturing out off of the coasts of New England and Nova Scotia to fish the Great Cod Banks, and in previous episodes we've explored some of the English sea dogs like John Hawkins and Francis Drake, who had no problem sailing to the Caribbean and picking a side in the old trade versus raid question with the Spanish, or even circumnavigating the globe to snag a galleon full of Spanish silver. But as as we discussed in our, our Sea Dogs episode, it turns out John Hawkins uh, wasn't always going to pick up uh, spices. No. No. turns out a lot of these people were going to pick up uh, men. Mm-hmm. So Human cargo. Yeah. Um, that's one thing that I, I've talked about in the past. Boy, we really give the Dutch a free pass. Holy yeah. shit, were those people slavers. Yes. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God. Fuck the Dutch. I still haven't forgiven them. Yeah, the Portuguese kind of had it on lock in, like, that first half of the 16th century, and then the Dutch just picked up and ran with that particular unbelievable. The the percentage in triangle trade that were Dutch slaves, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. It was even to the point where you had Dutch slavers supplying African warlords with arms to be more efficient at fighting African slaves. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the Dutch weren't so much taking these slaves to use in their own colonies no. because they didn't have that many. Yeah, they didn't They made their to. money selling them to other yeah. powers. Yeah. So by the dawn, uh, so also these people are dealing with a lot of unknowns about the wider world, but they're not stupid. By the dawn of the 17th century, they had enough maps, trading knowledge, and navigation smarts to know that North America was a few thousand miles across at most, and that all the riches of Asia could be found to the east of whatever was on the other side of Russia. If a way could be found to get there without sailing through the enemy's stomping grounds, that left two routes. Find a way going westward around the top of North America or head east over the top of Russia. That brings us to the year of our Lord, 1607. Enter the Muscovy Company. Set up by a group of British merchants to do the unthinkable and open up trade with Ivan the Terrible's Russians, a few decades before in order to make up some lost ground economically, the company decided that the best way to get in on that sweet, sweet East Indies game was to find a way around the north of Russia. Now, they did know that the route would, for most of the year, be blocked by sea ice, as it was fairly common for fishermen and whalers to sail pretty far north, but they also figured, hey, there's pretty much 24 hours a day of sunlight for about a third of the year, so that will, of course, melt all the ice, so we'll just go then. Yeah, why wouldn't it melt the ice? Yeah, and so enters the subject of this episode. Captain Henry Hudson. Now, basically, we know fuck all about his early life. But we can, it feels good, man. Yeah, feels yeah. good. To like, like research a dude for a, a pretty good amount of time, and you like don't really know how old he is. <laughs> yeah, not hundred percent sure where he was born. Maybe he was married. <laughs> Who knows? Now, uh, well, now we can make some educated guesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there's a fair amount of information about his family background, just not a lot about Henry himself. Best guesses put his date of birth somewhere in the 1565 to 1570 range. He comes from a trading family, which would have been fairly well-to-do, and it's no surprise that he gets the call-up from the Muscovy Company because his family pretty much was the Muscovy Company. His grandfather was a founding member of the company and an alderman of the city of London, and his father followed in the family footsteps as a member of what was essentially the company's board of directors. Now, we know that Henry was the youngest of eight brothers, that poor, poor woman, (laughs) so we can surmise that he likely ended up doing what most younger sons in maritime trading families did. While the older sons would end up getting the desk jobs and the administrative gigs, the younger sons were sent to sea at a young age, as early as 10 or 11 years old sometimes, to learn the practical seafaring side of things. Yeah, but at 10 or 12, it it makes sense in that era to go to sea because it's your midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't can't get a tattoo. (laughs) You can't buy that Corvette. You can't cheat on your wife. (laughs) Can't buy a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. So... uh, 
Now, unless that was unless they showed a real early aptitude for administration, mm-hmm. which we can guess that Henry didn't. No. He probably started as a cabin boy. Insert reference here. You know what? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wanted to set the table for you. <laughs> well, huh, we're kind of waiting on this one. No, I, I had another one planned for yeah. later, but I appreciate you looking up. So, <laughs> so he, it turns out he was not, in fact, a fancy lad. Mm. Well, he, he actually probably was. He's definitely more foppish. Yeah. Well, it would come out that when he couldn't speak your actual language, he would speak to you in Latin. So the guy had some education. Right. And so he would Imagine, the, like, um, like, how the hell does that work? Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, my Dutch isn't what it used to be. <laughs> so uh, six Semper Tyrannus. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, perfect. So he would uh, he'd learn the seafaring trade and uh, started as a cabin boy and uh, would take those years to learn the craft and eventually become the captain of his own ship. Because it doesn't hurt if you're a trading em- a family trading empire to have some of your family members within your trading fleet. It's entirely possible he took part in the fight against the Spanish Armada, as most of the major trading families and companies put ships and men into that fight. And he may have seen other action against the Spanish, either in re- things like the uh, Francis Drake's raid on Cadiz, or even just straight-up piracy. Hmm. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It's also possible, although less likely, that he may have taken part in some earlier attempts to track down the entrance to the Northwest Passage, but none of these were successful, and it's really not worth going into any of the specifics in the time we have, although these voyages and stories uh, and the stories about them almost certainly had an impact on Hudson, to be sure. So in January of 1607, Hudson's name appears for the first time in surviving print in the minutes of the Muscovy Company Directors Meeting, where the Reverend Richard Hackloyd describes him as an experienced seaman and saying he, quote, has in his possession secret information that will enable him to find the Northeast Passage, that being the trade route around the north of Russia. Hudson agrees to undertake the mission for a whopping fee of 130 pounds, five shillings. It's about 80 grand today. And decides to take with him the new 80-ton bark Hopewell, as well as his son John, who was still a young teenager, and a whopping 10 other men. So operating with a bit of a skeleton crew. Now, they uh, spent three days praying at St. Ethelburga's Church. That's fun. And That's on not May- how I want to spend my three days before a long voyage. Well, me neither, but it was a different time and a different approach. That was their television, Kyle. Yes. <laughs> we binged the Mandalorian. They pray at St. Ethelburga's Church. Oh, it's so good. It's so good, fam. <laughs> I mean, I don't binge The Mandalorian. I just stay up till 3 a.m. every Thursday because that's when it drops. And yeah. <laughs> it's worth it. Yeah. And yeah so it turns on, out we get the yeah. L.A. midnight. <laughs> and so on May 1st, 1607, they set out to find a northern passage to Cathay, what they would f- called China. Within a couple of weeks, he already deviates from the company-directed route, and instead of heading directly north as they pass the Shetland Islands, he swings northwest. This is going to become a bit of a pattern with old Hank. Now, right from the get-go, Hudson had to do some fancy talking to get his men to not mutiny and turn the ship right back around. See, this was the first voyage for any of these men except Hudson that had, they had undertaken with any ship with an actual needle compass. Hmm. And they soon discovered that the compass needle wasn't pointing directly at true north, a principle known as deflection, where the needle points a few degrees off due to electromagnetic interference, which isn't a big deal to any navigator worth half a damn, uh, as they can figure out the difference and adjust accordingly over enough uh, enough given time now being men of the early 17th century their immediate explanation was witchcraft makes they, sense good i mean good. i get it 
Convinced that they were cursed by some dark magic spell, they threatened to confine Hudson to the hold and turn the Hopewell right back around to London until Hudson managed to convince them to hold off on that decision until he could show them that he was indeed adjusting for deflection and sailing them in the right way. So, wow. at, yeah. <laughs> awesome. After six... <laughs> <laughs> it's just... These fucking idiots. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, that's not... Yeah. Not only do I have to explain science it's to so them, good. I have to convince them I'm not a dark yeah. wizard. It's so good <laughs> that today everyone believes science and doesn't believe a bunch of irrational bullshit. Oh, God. He was just exercising his freedoms. Yeah. <laughs> Liberal agenda. Stop his deflection. Stop the sale. I thought Stop I was discovering sale. America. <laughs> So after six weeks, they reached the eastern coast of Greenland, facing bad weather but spending two precious weeks heading north and mapping the previously unexplored coast, determined to uh, find the northern end of that gigantic landmass. Now on June 25th, the Hopewell's log notes that the ship was rammed by a grampus, which is kind of a catch-all term for pretty much any whale or large porpoise, which sounds like a disaster, but given that it could be anything from a blue whale all the way down to an orca, who knows? Either way, again, the crew gets a little bit antsy about all this because this was considered to be a bad omen. Yeah, now now people are throwing whales at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly impelled by some sort of magic spell from a witch a, a couple thousand miles away now. <laughs> I mean, if they would have prayed for six days, they yeah. probably would have been fine. Now, however... Now you can't pray. Yeah. Nope, that's an even number. Ah, he got me. There what are you come. doing, Kyle? You've <laughs> damned them all. <laughs> However, by the last week of June, the Hopewell had encountered almost a solid sheet of sea ice and was being forced northeast. At the end of June, they reached the Svalbard Island Archipelago, several hundred miles north of Norway, claimed them for England, despite the fact that Dutch navigator William Barents had already claimed them for the Netherlands back in 1596, but apparently didn't communicate that very well, and set about spending several more weeks exploring and mapping these islands, despite the fact that almost half the crew was down sick for quite some time, after eating spoiled polar bear meat. Huh. Yeah. Lousy with vitamin A. Does make you wonder how it got spoiled, though. If it's so cold, wouldn't it stay relatively fresh? I mean, or maybe I... it's a quality particular to polar bear meat. I, you know what? I've, I've never had polar bear. Neither have I. I'm not, I'm not sure a... that we're allowed I'm, to I'm, have that anymore. I'm not on that level of gourmand. <laughs> I've had bear, and I'm, I can tell you. I'm going to be honest. Disgusting. For how incompetent they seem so far, I'm surprised they killed the polar bear. Mm. It's funny that you say that they were incompetent, because as we're going to find out, even though it didn't quite end the way that old Henry Hudson right, thought it was going to, this guy's crazy good at his job. Yeah. So, well, so he's here, good. The rest of the crew is a little bit to be... Well, uh, and they're not necessarily incompetent. They're just stupidly superstitious. And that, that's a fair point. And also, we're not, we're not saying super they're hungry because they're just eating old-ass polar yeah. bear. No, we're not saying they're jumping... No, we're also not saying they're jumping onto the ice flow... Mm wrestling the polar bear and strangling it to death yeah it could have been a are, dead polar there, bear uh, it could have been a dead yeah, polar bear which probably. also explains the spoiled meat or there is a theory that they may that the polar bears would not have been familiar with humans may have been curious gotten close and the hopewell had swivel guns <laughs> oh okay yep all right i retract my previous i'm not statement. saying that's definitely what happened but in i a, don't I, like I don't scenario know how, where it's easiest uh, like, to pick off a polar bear. A curious polar bear is probably still a pretty angry polar bear. I mean, they're hyper aggressive, and I'll like, I mean, uh, the swivel gun's going to do the trick. But yeah. like, 
it's unlikely these guys were even hunting polar bears. They probably just found dead ones and decided they were just going to get all hopped up and blow it out on polar bear, well, like rotten polar bear butthole. Well, that or they, and were, they just have to go home. That or they were walking around, they turned a corner, there's a polar bear there, and you have a giant oh shit moment mm-hmm. like I had with a grizzly in the Grand Tetons. Yeah. <laughs> so I completely lost where I was. Anyway, uh, yes. So on July 13th, they reached the northernmost point of their voyage, 80 degrees, 25 minutes north latitude, only 577 miles as the crow flies, from the North Pole. So they are up there. This is pretty much as far north as any European explorer has ever been. Or at least as far north recorded as any European explorer has ever been. So on the 21st of July, there's a real close call for the becalmed Hopewell as the tide brings along a massive iceberg that threatens to smash her between it and the shoreline. But the quink-thinking Hudson orders everyone into the ship's boat and has everyone row like mad towing the 80-ton vessel slowly out of the way before she gets fully titanic Now, by the end of July, however, Hudson realizes that the weather is already starting to turn against him and that further northeast progress is going to be blocked by ice. The decision was made to turn back to England. Now, the time wasn't a total loss, however, as the discovery of massive herds of walruses and large whalebone deposits gave the Muscovy Company a heads-up to invest in whaling and hunting expeditions that would help jumpstart English expo- uh, exploratory trade and allow the company to turn a heavy profit over the next few decades at the cost of pretty much decimating these animal Mm. populations. Mm. Now, on the way back, Hudson does make an actual discovery that seems to be a genuine one. 370 miles northeast of Iceland, he discovers a mountainous island about 34 miles long. He calls it Hudson's Touches, which just doesn't sit right with me. There's not a lot of other places called touches no. as far as islands. I'm not 100% sure why he went with that one. But What what was the inspiration? Well, I mean, they were sailors. <laughs> They've been out for a while. Yeah, it's a lonely life in the Arctic. Nobody's on the island. We're, and we're not here to judge. <laughs> they ate all the polar bears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it's... Disco- uh, and so although the island's discovery is journaled, it's likely that he didn't mention it to the Muscovy Company because he found it while making an illogical and unauthorized detour. Now, the Dutch would find the place a few years later, name it Jan Mayen, and to this day it's still a major link in the NATO radar station chain, despite there never having been more than about 50 people on the island at any one time. Yes, it uh, still belongs to Norway, where we have a listener. Yes. So, yes, Buff, if you are listening, my friend, shout out to you. So, yes, we do have a... A Norwegian subscriber. Fantastic. So after a stop in the Faroe Islands to sell off some polar bear skins and walrus ivory they collected, no idea if these skins were from the bear they ate, one assumes yes, the Hopewell arrived back in England on September 15th after three and a half months away. So a nice, quick, up, Mm -hmm. down, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. So Hudson's report is made to the Muscovy Company, and they want him to lead a whaling expedition to the area, but Hudson declines as he wants to focus his efforts on finding that backdoor to Asia. Over the winter, the Hopewell is strengthened with some additional planking to help resist ice damage, and uh, and another voyage is put together. This time, the Hopewell uh, sets out with 15 men, including a guy named Robert Jewett, master seaman, who Hudson (laughs) wrote... Stop it. Shut up. I'm just proud that he said backdoor, and I, I just I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I couldn't. I was trying so hard. You know, I, great. I can only become so erect with this kind yeah. of talk. Please. <laughs> By the way, Please. I'm really glad that I'm, – I'm, I'm really upset that we were able to resist this sort of thing without Michael's moderating influence. <laughs> He'd be laughing before any of us. 
We yeah, miss you, buddy. We can't wait till you're back next time. You, you hit us with backdoor and then master semen. I just, I can't. Shut I can't. up. I hate you. Look, I hate I'm, you. Uh, I'm finally drinking for these things again. Yeah. For so, the first time ever, I'm well for one of these things. <laughs> I'm not... So I did get bit by a tick yes. the other day. We didn't talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. December first, I had a uh, yeah, yeah. Can, I had to pull a tick out of my back. Can Lyme cancel 1st. out Lyme? No, you get it twice and it's way worse. So Damn I had to mail a tick. <laughs> I, I to it's actually to to East Stroudsburg University. So I'm really looking forward to this. There you go. But uh, yeah, I talked to a guy. He's like, yeah, just put it in a bag and mail it to us. So I just <laughs> mailed him a tick. Biological warfare. <laughs> all I have is 13 gallon garbage bags. Will that work? Well, all I know is that whenever you're answering questions at the post office, like, does this have X, Y, or Z in them? It never says dead ticks that might have Lyme disease, so I just assume it's good. Yeah. If it's not, gentlemen, it's been an honor. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see you when I get out. So, yes. We'll smuggle in a microphone. <laughs> so, you're not going to like where we smuggle it in, but. So, to put this train wreck. Oh, so, to put this train door. wreck back on the track. <laughs> New expedition on the Hopewell, 15 men, including Robert Jewett, I'm not saying his title again, who Hudson wrote was, quote, Rear Admiral. (laughs) (laughs) Who Hudson wrote was, quote, filled with mean tempers. The voyage is supposed to set off from London on April 25th, 1608, and an Anglican priest was supposed to bless all the voyagers, but Jewett didn't take part, which is already a problem in these times of strict religious observance. Instead, spending the time entertaining friends in his quarters and refusing to send them off the ship when it was time to get underway. Hmm. Now, Hudson was forced to intervene and throw the guests off the ship so they could set off. The uh, Journal of John Cook, the bosun, said, the, no- quote, the nose of Master Jewett was put much out of joint. When I, desi- uh, when I desired to go to my sleeping cabin, Jewett was still in foul humors and had to be a threaded with lashings to be summoned to take the watch. Another inauspicious start. This time, the Hopewell headed directly northeast, around the top of Scandinavia, to Russia. They sailed for over a month and a half until they hit ice, again. Now, the Hud- now Hudson tries to go through it, but the Hopewell is stopped in its tracks, and the crew has to take poles and punt themselves out backwards before, shifting, uh, before the shifting ice crushes the ship. They spent the next few weeks sailing along between the southern side of the ice sheet and the north coast of Russia until at the end of June, when they hit the large island of no, uh, Novaya uh, Zemlya, I think it's pronounced, and are forced by the ice to go south around it. They make notes of massive herds of walrus, reindeer, and even the sighting of a mermaid, quote, with the tail of a porpoise and speckled like a mackerel, with black hair, white skin, and bare of breast. Hello! Ooh, hey now! Hey. Look out! By ooh, the- <laughs> ooh, like that hot Slavic mermaid from the, uh, the Pittsburgh Renaissance Fair. Man, that's what I was most disappointed about. Loved Losing the, I love the mermaid, man. Oh. It was at first it was a living statue who we all know has stolen my heart. Yes. But now there's a mermaid involved and she made a yeah. bunch of body jokes about swords. Oh, look out. Yeah, we lost Renfair and we lost Krampus knock this year. I'm I'm not happy with the state of twenty. Yeah, I mean, that's unlike... the trade off I get for not having like uh at least for me, Saint Patrick's Day. Yes. It's fantastic. That's true. That's true. We didn't have to or Kenny Chesney. Yeah, Kenny Ch- There was another one this year. There was Kenny Chesney and some other inbred. Yeah. They were just going to round them all up from Butler so they could just come to Pittsburgh and litter. Yep. Now by the <laughs> Don't of- worry, we ain't getting a next year yeah. either. Now, by the end of July, however, it became clear that the path eastward just wasn't going to happen, there being just too much ice for the Hopewell to get through. So Hudson decides to turn back. 
not to England, but to try to go around the top of North America. Except he doesn't tell the crew. Now, they make good progress westward, but by the 7th of August, when the crew realizes that they're not turning south back to England, another situation of near mutiny occurs. Again, another thing that is becoming a pattern with Henry Hudson. Deciding that another try at a later date beat getting lynched by his crew, Hudson turns south and the Hopewell arrives back in Blighty on August 26th, 1608. Suffice to say, the Muscovy Company was disappointed with these efforts. Nothing new was really discovered that could be economically taken advantage of, and when Hudson made requests for a new expedition with a larger crew and less rigid orders to go around North America, the company declined, making it clear that they'd lost confidence in his abilities. Hudson was pretty bummed out, and his friend, the uh, the Reverend Samuel Purchase, wrote that he met with Hudson in the fall and found the explorer, quote, sunk into the lowest depths of the humor of melancholy from which no man could rouse him. It mattered not that his perseverance and industry had made England the richer by his maps of the north. I told him he had created fame that would endure for all time, but he would not listen to me, end quote. Now looking for backers and unable to find them in England, Hudson travels to their erstwhile allies slash rivals, the Dutch. He gets a pretty cold reception, so he heads to the French, only to get a letter from the Dutch East India Company saying, oh, no, 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 come on back, we want to set something up probably because they didn't want the French getting their hands on Hudson's know-how. So on January 8, 1609, Hudson and the Dutch East India Company sign a contract for Hudson to do what he did before, search for a northeast passage around the top of Russia. He will receive 800 guilders for leading the expedition, his wife will get 200 guilders, more if he fails to return within a year. The company also agreed to pay the expenses for his family to live in Amsterdam during his absence, and stipulates that they must live in Holland without working for anyone but the Dutch East India Company. It is unlikely that Hudson intended to fulfill the terms of this contract, however. Only two of the 17 directors actually signed the contract, which may have been done to excuse the company of legal liability later, should Hudson fail. Or it may have been done simply to prevent Hudson from entering other employment. You make somebody do something, you keep them busy, they can't screw you over. So, for the voyage, Hudson is given the Half Moon, an 80-foot-long, 100-ton vlyboot, or flyboat, basically a small race-built galleon with high sides and fore-and-aft castles, as well as four to six light cannons and several swivel guns. He gets a crew of 20 men, about half English and half Dutch, a language Hudson doesn't speak, and some old hands are back, including Robert Jewett. Of his Who has Dutch... been demoted to Master Bader. Mm. Well played. Of his Dutch crewmates, uh, second... I, I do like the, the, frown of, the, the Robert De Niro-esque frown of approval from Kyle. Yeah. <laughs> Of his Dutch crewmates, second mate John Coleman wrote, quote, I hope that these square-faced men know the sea. Looking at their fat bellies, I fear they think more highly of eating than of sailing. They are an ugly lot. Wow. End quote. Class after class of ugly, ugly children. <laughs> Under orders to set sail no later than the 15th of March, 1609, Hudson does so on April 6th. With a quarrelsome crew and no religious service or ceremony to start the voyage, which I'm sure did wonders for the morale of the more godly men men aboard, the half-moon headed northeast, but not long after uh, rounding Norway's North Cape, she hits ice and bad weather, as one would expect rounding the north of Norway. Yeah. Unable to make it even as far as he did in his last voyage, and with a crew once again on the verge of mutiny, likely because most of the Dutch sailors had never sailed in Arctic conditions before, Hudson says, fuck it. We're doing it my way. He shows Do the crew. Do it live. He, 
fucking thing sucks. <laughs> like, all right, guys, I got a plan. Turn left. <laughs> Basically. So they do. <laughs> now, well, he shows the crew copies of maps and journals that he has from previous explorers' journeys to the New World, and in mid to late May, the decision is made to turn the half moon around, head west, and then find the northwest passage to Cathay. For the next six weeks, the half moon is battered by storms, losing part of its foremast. On June 25th, another ship is spotted, and the half moon attempts to give chase probably hoping to capture and loot her for booty, which was not part of their purview. Mm -hmm. And no indications of who the ship belonged to, but I'm sure Hudson and his crew, having been sailing under the Dutch East India Company, that wouldn't have caused some sort of major international incident. No, definitely not. The Half Moon was tough, but she wasn't a very fast sailor at the best of times, let alone with damaged rigging. And the other ship easily got away, which is probably for the best. Now, finally, on July 8th, 1609, the Half Moon arrived off of Newfoundland. Knowing that they needed a new foremast, they decided to sail south towards where the best trees were, down towards Maine. They were able, uh, they were able to make landing, uh, they were unable, excuse me, to make landing due to intense fog, but after three days, the Half Moon anchors off of what is now Penobscot Bay on July 14th. Now, while working to find a suitable tree to construct a new mast, the crew encounters some of the indigenous peoples of the area, either of the Abenaki or the Mi'kmaq peoples. The crew spent two weeks cutting trees, replacing the busted mast, fishing, gathering fresh water, and trading with the local villages. Another wave of superstitious paranoia gripped the crew when the ship's cat, without warning, began running from one side of the ship to the other, stopping to look overboard before running back to the other side intermittently all day. Have they never seen a cat before? Probably yeah. witches. This is, this is a cat with the zoomies. Yeah. Yeah. You have three. You must live with this all the time. I have one, and she does it all the time. It's constant. And so the crew takes this to be a sign that something was wrong, and that something wrong was obviously that the local peoples were planning an attack on the ship. Now Robert Jewett decides to preempt that by taking six men and stealing the closest village's biggest boat, bringing it back to the half moon. Then, a dozen men with muskets and swivel guns landed ashore, firing on the village and driving the people away. There's no mention of what casualties the locals suffered. The men then looted the village for whatever spoils they could find. Exasperated, but unwilling to punish anybody due to his precarious command situation, Hudson decides to sail away south in the dead of night before any kind of native counterattack can be mounted. Probably smart. Mm -hmm. The Half Moon sails down past Cape Cod, which has already been mapped, and further south down past Long Island and the New Jersey coast, all the way to Delaware Bay, where the crew goes ashore, trades with the native villagers, and then proceeds once again to attack and loot the village because they don't trust the locals to not do the same to them. By mid-August, the Half Moon has sailed all the way south to the entrance of the James River and could have easily traveled uh, up to the only established English colony in the region at Jamestown, but instead headed back north to try and sail into the Chesapeake Bay, but wind conditions were so severe that they kept the ship from even making entry. Mm, I believe it. I've actually sailed in the Chesapeake a lot. Yeah. It gets real gnarly real fast. Now instead, Hudson tries to navigate Delaware Bay, finding it difficult and full of treacherous shoals, and only makes it nine miles in. So he heads back up to the I Jersey. I do like that he made it a total of nine miles and then declares to, like, it, like it's in his journals, declares to the crew, this does not go to the Pacific. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, nah, totally doesn't do it. I don't think this is it, fellas. If anybody has ever seen, uh, it just just uh, pause. 
uh, go to Google and look at a size. Look at the size of these land masses. Nine miles isn't shit. Nope. <laughs> Delphi, that's all the fur they made. They're like, no, nah, there's no way this goes to Pacific. No way. None. I mean, they probably came across a young Joe Biden who just shouted out and <laughs> let him know that we can go to the Pacific. That's a bunch of malarkey. I don't understand why this white man who keeps saying malarkey lives here with us. <laughs> so anyway, he keeps accidentally yeah. settling New York City. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, he heads back up the Jersey coast once again, and on September 3rd, 1609, sails past what are now Staten and Coney Islands and finds the past uh, encountering a young Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> And, and finds this the is, this, is, this is this is when we liked Rudy. This is before his face started melting on television. He farted all the time, and he married his cousin. Yeah, and finds the wide mouth of a river heading inland. Now he wasn't the first European to find the river. That honor goes to Giovanni uh, de Verrazzano back in 1524. But he was the first to decide to sail up the river and take a look more than just a few cursory miles. Now he takes he finds that the river is deep enough for the half moon to travel up. And then he takes the half moon up the river as far as the ship's draft will allow. On September 4th, he encounters the first locals in that river valley of the Montauk Nation who give him his first taste of corn, which for some reason he refers to in all of his writings as Turkish wheat. <laughs> I have no idea where, the Tur- it, where, where is the Turkish part of this entry? I, well, I don't know. It seems like Turkish was just kind of a catch-all term. It's fairly racist. I suppose. I, like, I, mean, I mean, Turkish delight... Yeah. yeah, we like we've all we've all read uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's not from Turkey. No, it has nothing to I mean, do I with guess Turkey. Maybe, I guess that has it might have something to do why even in modern English something with an interesting flavor is referred to as Moorish. Maybe that could have something to do with it. Yeah, I, I can yeah. tell you this: it's probably racist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turkish to me seems to be a 17th century catch-all term for unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Turkish wheat. Uh, now, the uh, Montauks also give him gifts of tobacco, and he gives back beads and knives in return. Now, the interactions are peaceful for the most part, and the Montauks actually show their peaceful intent through a ritual of breaking arrows and shooting the shafts into the fire. But still, of course, Hudson's men don't trust them, although this time Hudson manages to keep them from launching another preemptive attack. <laughs> now, on September 6th, however, it doesn't last. Hudson sends five men in a boat under second mate John Coleman, who had been with Hudson on both of his previous voyages, to map and sound a tributary 12 miles away. No one knows what happened for sure, but Coleman got into it with two canoes full of locals who proceeded to kill him with an arrow to the throat. I mean, we're outside of New York, so I'm imagining, I'm sailing here! (laughs) Hey, yo! Hey, whoa! Hey, (laughs) hey, whoa! I'm navigating here! What'd you say? What'd you? There's just a bunch of smaller yellow boats. No, like, no, no, no. He's just stuck behind them. No, you take that Mets jacket off, motherfucker. This is a Yankees neighborhood. <laughs> Fucking tourist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they shoot him in the throat with an arrow and oh, kill him. God. Now, in return, the crew of the Half Moon took two Montauks prisoner when they came aboard ship to trade, and somehow the situation held there without further violence. Coleman was buried, and the half moon continued upriver, but soon the two prisoners saw an, saw an opportunity and just leapt over the side and escaped, <laughs> taunting the crew from cover of the trees on shore. Now, the men continued north, and Hudson thought that he might have actually found the passage when he reached what became known as the Tappan Zee, an area where the river widens to more than three miles across, but when he reached the far end near where Newburgh sits today, he realized his mistake. Now, still, they pressed on. 
The Half Moon soon ran aground and was freed with the help of the locals that they didn't trust, who despite uh, all of their uh, welcome rituals and good deeds, uh, yeah, still not trusted by a bunch of fat, stinky, drunk European sailors. Once they sailed... Maybe they just wanted them the hell yeah. out of there. Yeah. Like, Maybe. And that's, that's not like a, a snarky comment or anything. They were probably just trying to be rid of them. That, yeah. This, this is going right. on. Uh, just so we know, like, concurrently, if you go south just a couple hundred miles, this is Pocahontas. Like, the events surrounding John Smith and Pocahontas are happening at the exact same time. It's not as fun as the Disney flick. Yeah. No. You, yeah. <laughs> no. There's a lot of. Fewer amusing cartoon <laughs> raccoons, I found. Yeah, there's an awful lot of rape. Yeah, a lot and more. People lo- are yeah. burned alive. A lot more attempted genocide and. and and murder and starving to death slavery for instance mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. honestly like the the reason why uh so many tribes survived that and ultimately did not uh was because they they did shit like this they mm-hmm. yep they basically flew the white flag um which is weird because it was the warlike tribes that actually ended up surviving later mm-hmm. yeah uh, it still exists today more or less pretty much yeah so what does that teach you stab whitey yeah, don't trust much. Whitey. Don't trust Whitey. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, on they sailed past places that would eventually get names like Poughkeepsie, Newburgh, and Kinderhook until the river became too shallow to navigate in anything but small boats. Having reached a point around 35 miles south of where Albany is now, uh, a point that is now known as the town of Hudson, New York. This is where he discovered the first steamed ham. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a regional term. It really is. Uh, the Half Moon had covered about 150 miles of what would in future be named the Hudson River. The Half Moon had covered over 150 miles of what would in future be named the Hudson River. Although they couldn't make it to the source all the way up in the Adirondacks, Hudson had comprehensively journaled the richness of the land, the variety of wildlife, the presence of great forests, and the friendliness of the local indigenous groups. These notes will be of great importance in driving the Dutch efforts to colonize the region in coming decades. All wasn't exactly hunky-dory, however, once the half-moon returned back to what is now Peekskill. On a further trading stop, a local snuck into Robert Jewett's cabin and stole some clothes and his pillow. So Jewett shot and killed him. The cook panicked, and buried his hatchet in the head of another local who was just climbing aboard. And the rest of the locals wisely decide to flee. The half-moon lifts anchor, and then the next day, down near what's now Manhattan, about a hundred Montauks who got word of the violence gave chase to the half-moon in canoes, and a full battle ensues. The half-moon uses her cannons, swivel guns, and small arms to cause several casualties to the Montauks, and several crew members are lightly wounded by arrows. Now, this event would be remembered by the locals and would add a certain level of difficulty to the Dutch settlement mission in the area a couple decades later. So finally, on October 4th, 1609, Hudson and the Half Moon leave the mouth of the river. Now, a debate occurs on board whether or not to winter over in Newfoundland and continue looking for a passage in the spring, but it's ultimately decided to return to Europe. So Hudson, under Dutch command and sailing a Dutch ship, finally returns after seven and a half months directly to England. He writes to the Dutch East India Company and sends his findings and receives a reply of, What the hell are you doing? This wasn't the purpose of the voyage. By the way, bring back our ship, please. But that's the last communication that Hudson had with the Dutch East Indy. 
as he was officially censured by the English crown for voyaging to the detriment of his country. And Hudson and the English crewmen of the Half Moon are placed under house arrest. Given how many Englishmen sailed under other flags at the time, this was pretty unusual and was likely the result of cabals of merchants angry at the Dutch getting a head start on the colonization of the region and exerting influence on the crown. Now, the remaining Dutch crew of the Half Moon sailed her back to Amsterdam, along with all of Hudson's notes, logbooks, and maps soon after. For five months, Hudson languished in England, unable to even collect his pay from the Dutch East India. The saving grace came in the form of a syndicate of rich landowners willing, with the backing of no less than the Prince of Wales, to finance an expedition to seek out the Northwest Passage. Deep state. (laughs) (laughs) The influence of these powerful backers got Hudson out of the Hooskow, and they set him up with a ship called the Discovery. Now, the Discovery happened to be the smallest of the three ships used to take the first wave of colonists over to Jamestown back in 1607 clocking in at a mere 20 tons and 38 feet long from stem to stern. Standard school bus is just a just a hair over 35. Yeah. So you're packing all these people on the open ocean, in the ice packs, in a school bus. Made out of wood and canvas. Mm-hmm. Fuck that. It would basically be like riding on top of a school bus. Yes. <laughs> there, there's no such thing as below decks on these. These boats didn't even have a fucking steering wheel. They weren't no. invented yet. They just had basically a tiller. Yeah, they yeah. had a tiller, and that took up uh, those tillers are very long. Mm. So there's, you know, probably six or eight feet of room that you can't use because somebody has to run a goddamn tiller. Yeah, and if, you if are, anybody is unaware of and what you a are tiller sleeping is, on deck and heading into an area that is not a temperate climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is where you have a guy literally like pushing a stick attached to a rudder in order to steer. Yeah, while everybody else is outside just sweating on each other yeah now i've i've been on the the remake of the discovery where is it down it's down at jamestown okay Mm. because they have the all they have reconstructions of all three of the ships down there the the discovery the godspeed and the susan constant and i've been on the discovery and uh roomy right huh roomy comfortable uh the cozy yeah let's go with cozy intimate people like small houses well white people like the small houses yeah Uh, uh, no it's yeah the, the idea of getting on that thing and going across the Atlantic to a place where there's icebergs. Like, you're worried about a polar bear getting you when you're not on the ship. With the Discovery, the polar bear is going to get you by just tearing through the side of the fucking thing. Right. It's, yeah, it is not, it does not look like a comfortable means of conveyance. So on April 17th, 1610, 23 men and boys, including Hudson's son John and Master's mate Robert Jewett, are crammed into the Discovery, because I don't have a better word for it, and she set sail. Now, at this point, Jewett and Hudson do not like each other, but Hudson needs Jewett's skills, and Jewett needs work, which Hudson can provide. Again, things don't get off to a very great start, as a man named Henry Green, a natural troublemaker who Hudson brought onto the crew over the objections of his men, and whom they did not like, got into a fist fight with the barber surgeon, Edward Wilson, who happened to be very well liked by the men. Packing your boat where you each have a foot and a half of personal space with people who hate each other seems like a really, really, really intelligent decision. Good planning, right? Yeah. I don't hate it. Now, Hudson declined... Keeps him motivated. Keeps him honest. Yeah. And Hudson declined to discipline Green and even blamed Wilson for starting the fight, which, whether it was true or not, didn't sit well with the men and bred a simmering undercurrent of resentment. Now, after stops in Iceland and the southern tip of Greenland, the discovery arrives on June 25th at the entrance to what is uh, what was known at the time 
as the Furious Overfall. That's next uh, to Mordor, right? Yes. That was also the name of everybody's metal band at the time. <laughs> I do love 1610's metal. It's I mean, so it's, good. It's a hell of a name for what's just a body of water between two, two land masses. Um, but it's located at the northern tip of Labrador. The discovery began to slowly and methodically transfer the lane between Labrador and what's now Baffin Island to the north. It's not Poodle. We don't get the Labradoodle. No. Damn. damn. No, they, they, they did not sail through the Labradoodle Strait, Kyle. Blast. This, uh, this trans, uh, transit would become known as the Hudson Strait. Inventive, right? Now, once they transferred the 430-mile-long strait by August 2nd, 1610, it became finally clear that the other side opened up into a massive body of water. And they thought they'd finally found it. They'd finally found the passage to the northern Pacific. What they didn't know was that they'd entered a body that would be known into modern times as Hudson Bay. And it is massive. At more than 470,000 square miles in area, it stretches for over 650 miles east to west and 850 miles at points north to south. So you can forgive anyone without prior knowledge of the area for thinking that they found they found their way to the other ocean. I mean, it's I, I, I can't fault these guys for mm, that. Not at all. Hudson's priority was to map and sound the coasts, which considering that the bay encompasses more than 4,000 miles of coastline is quite a chore. However, the ice came in as it does every year in the bay, and the crew was forced to winter on shore in the southern part of the bay, where Ontario and Quebec now share a northern border. During this period, the resentment grew, and Robert Jewett began to poison the well by sussing out uh, Henry Green's true purpose on board, to report to Hudson the state of the crew and what they were thinking as a shipboard snitch. Fucking snitches, man. The ship's 30 feet across. Yeah, Does he really just, need a snitch? You just like sit at the front and One face wonders. the back, and you're yeah. good. Yeah, you can just pick up on anything. I I, I don't know. I, I'm just super impressed that some of these guys had secrets at all. Yeah. I mean, certainly no physical secrets. Ugh. Right. Ugh. So, Jewett confronted Hudson about it, and Hudson was so incensed that he considered setting immediately back for Iceland once the ice had cleared, and just to put Jewett on the first fishing boat back to England. Jewett was also demoted from his role as master's mate. Time allowed tempers to cool, but the damage had been done. The winter was harsh, but all but one man made it through. His good heavy cloak, however, was arbitrarily given away by Hudson to none other than his stooge Henry Green, which diverted from the traditional method of auctioning off the dead man's goods at the mast with the proceeds going to benefit the dead man's family once you got back to your original point. Sailors don't like tradition. Mm, not at all. Come the spring, however, suffering from scurvy and reduced to eating moss and frogs after driving most of the local fish and game away, most of the crew was desperate to return home and sick of Hudson's favoritism. The warming weather brought back access to food, but not enough to last very long, and Jewett and some others were convinced that Hudson was hiding a significant amount of food for himself and a few select others. Hudson himself had wondered aloud about the possibility of marooning some of the men ashore so as to extend the lifespan of their onboard stores. On June 12, 1611, after eight and a half months locked in the ice, the Discovery is finally able yeah, to set sail. Yeah, they left in yeah. June. Like, that is how far north these guys are. That is how inhospitable this climate is. Again, in a school bus that you're sleeping on the roof And of. it's not nearly as far north as they thought they would mm -hmm. have to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, in, in Norway, he was less than 600 miles from the North Pole. Yeah. So, yes, June 12, 1611, the Discovery is able to set sail through the now broken up ice in the bay. Determined to carry on, Hudson heads in a northwest direction, determined that in the few warmer months he has to find the other end of the passage that will take them to Asia. On the 22nd of June, however, the breaking point was reached. Somewhere in the middle of James Bay, extending off the south end of Hudson Bay, the mutineers struck. They overpowered and bound Hudson, his son John, and several other crewmen who were either too sick to pull their weight or seen to be Hudson loyalists. They placed the men in a small open boat called a shallop with clothing, powder and shot, a couple of swords and pikes, an iron pot, a small amount of food and drink, and a Bible, and then cut the mooring rope. See, that's interesting. One of the sites that I used, um, and it's there's some confliction here, uh, it says they basically just had the clothes on their back. You know, they, they definitely didn't part with any food. And the fact that they would give them weapons doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense because mm-hmm. they were rationing shot, and they were trying to hunt. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Douglas Hunter book gives a, a short list of the things that they put okay. on the boat. So, it, yes, this this is all just based on secondary sources. So it may be entirely true that they just put them in a boat and told them to fuck I off. mean, if you're marooning somebody, you pretty much toss them in a boat and then cut the rope that the yeah. boat's attached to. You, you don't get an oar whenever you're marooned. Now, you're, you're just also looking loose. at this from – they could be looking at it from the idea of – because this is still a very uh, Anglican society of – we will not leave them without something, for we are Christian men, mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah, I they don't, did do all that praying. Yeah. I don't know. So, it's, uh, yeah. All told, Henry Hudson, his son John, and seven others were set adrift in the middle of one of the largest inland bodies of water in the world. Many, many miles from shore. The leaders in the mutiny were Hudson's longtime right hand, Robert Jewett, and none other than the man he brought aboard as his toady, Henry Green. After setting their captain adrift, the Discovery was ransacked, looking for hidden supplies. And while plenty of the victims' possessions were taken and auctioned off by the 13 remaining crewmen, very few hidden stores were found, amounting to a small barrel of beer, a half bushel of peas, and two small tubs of butter. I got to agree with him. Uh, other than, like, not finishing the beer, which I know you have to ration, but even if I was starving to death, I'm not eating any fucking peas. I hate peas. I'm too old, and I'm not going to eat peas anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I'm just I'm over I'm over eating shit and I'm like I'm only eating things I like from here on out oh, we we're going to die of the fucking Rona I'm done eating peas we, we just lost the support of all those pea farmers who listen yeah you know what fuck them our over. biggest demographic <laughs> I'm over it man I'm over it I get it I'm now with the, the mutinous sailors so the shallop rode after the discovery at high speed for a short while perhaps in the hope that once the ship was searched they would be allowed back aboard but the Discovery put on additional sail, and soon the shallop disappeared into the distance. <laughs> the nine men aboard, including Captain Henry Hudson, driving force of the effort to find the fabled Northwest Passage, was never seen or heard from again. So, with Hudson gone, Green takes over as captain, and the mutineers begin an arduous voyage home. At the end of July, after spending more than a month trying to get their navigational bearings and sailing all over the place on starvation rations... They happen upon an Inuit settlement and trade for food. The next day, Green and five men take the ship's boat out and try to barter for more food. Someone says something insulting to someone else. Nobody knows who, and the mutineers are attacked. Of the six men, only two survived the encounter. And Henry Green was not one of those lucky survivors. It's interesting that Green was put in a position of power after all this. Who knows why. 
The Discovery sailed well, I mean, off. They, they did get rid of one of the greatest navigators in the history of sail. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm not 100% sure what we were thinking. I'm, I'm starting to think that their decision-making ability may have been slightly compromised. I blame the Dark Wizards. I blame Scurvy. It's probably smarter. Yes. <laughs> the Discovery, again, sailed off. And after making relatively unsuccessful stops for food in Newfoundland, they went back across the North Atlantic, forced to east survive on seagulls, and later, birds' bones fried in candle fat. Finally, 200 miles west of Ireland, a man finally died of starvation. Wow. The other ringleader of the mutiny, Robert Jewett. Finally, on September 6, 1611, the Discovery reached Bantry Bay on Ireland's southeast coast, and the crew was brought in by a fishing boat more dead than alive. The crew sold the last of their tools and personal possessions to buy food to make it to Plymouth. After nearly a year and five months, they were back with less than half the number who left. Of the eight survivors, all were interrogated by the company, uh, by the company's directors, and it was recommended that they be hanged for mutiny. However, by the time a trial was set to occur in 1618, we think our court system mm. moves slowly, none of the mutineers were punished further. Three of the eight survivors had already died, but it's also likely that the five remaining survivors, their skills and knowledge of the new discoveries were sorely needed because Hudson's charts and journals did survive the journey and caused a sensation and a flurry of investment in further exploration and colonization. That is the key part of Hudson's legacy. His exploration set the table not only for the Dutch colonization of what is now New York in the 1620s through the 1660s, but also the English takeover after a, but also the English takeover after a series of wars between the two nations. In addition, the English whaling industry, walrus ivory industry, and the fur trade in the northern parts of Canada can all be sourced to the work done by Henry Hudson. If it wasn't for Hudson, then the British Empire as we know it would not have developed to the strength that it did. No one knows what really happened to Henry Hudson and his shipmates after the crew aboard Discovery lost sight of them on that cold morning in June 1611. They were never found by subsequent rescue missions, nor was any trace found to identify them as having survived in that harsh land, or at least survived for long. Possibly they died in that boat on the water of cold and hunger. Several were already sick when they were abandoned, after all. Perhaps they made their way to the shore to set up a camp and await rescuers they figured would be sent from England to find them. In 1631... Captain Thomas James found the remains of what may have been a shelter erected on Danby Island. <laughs> During an expedition of 1668 to 1670, Captain Zachariah Gillian found similar remains supposedly left from an English crew some 60 years earlier. But the evidence, however tantalizing, is inconclusive. Hudson and his abandoned crew have vanished from history. They had few tools and were ill-equipped to survive another winter in that land. They may have been met with natives and traded for necessary supplies and food. They might have even been allowed to join a band and could survive today in the genes of modern natives. A, a, a band of natives, yes, not just yeah, like yeah. A, a, a band. <laughs> and they were marooned with only the clothes on their backs and a sweet bass. <laughs> How are we going to make it through the winter, sir? We only have four remaining PV amps. <laughs> but Hudson had not shown any qualities that would have endeared him to natives in the past, or at least his crew didn't, and there is little to suggest those natives would have had any sympathy for any of them. However, one story survives that may cast light on their fate within Inuit folklore. Hmm. It tells of an Inuit band which found a small boat on the water filled with dead white men and a single survivor, a young white male, perhaps John Hudson. 
Mm. The Inuit didn't know what to do with the boy, so they tied him outside their huts with their dogs, and they treated him for the rest of his short days as a pet. No more is known about his fate. (laughs) Now, an interesting aside is what happened with Hudson's wife, Catherine, after his disappearance. She was left penniless when Henry and John failed to return from their last voyage. But she still lobbied the East India Company, which sponsored the trip, to send out a rescue mission. Three years after Hudson's disappearance, she applied to the directors of the EIC. They recognized their obligation to the man who had, quote, lost his life in the service of the Commonwealth and sent a ship to look for Hudson, but it never found any trace of the abandoned crew. She also sought compensation for her husband's death, for which she called that troublesome, uh, for which she was called, quote, that troublesome and impatient woman in company records. But she was persistent and eventually did succeed. Now, she used this compensation as an investment, and under the company's approval and with their funding, she went to uh, Ahmadabad, India, to purchase indigo. She demanded special privileges there at the company's expense. According to company manifests, she went on a purchasing spree and purchased, on spec, several tons of indigo and a shit ton of valuable exotic textiles. She uh, She started a suit to get the East India Company to pay the freight back to England, and after much effort, got a settlement which the company described as, quote, the end of Mrs. Hudson's tiresome suit. (laughs) Catherine returned from that trip in 1622, sold all of the textiles for a king's ransom, and became a very wealthy woman indeed, retiring to her home in London. (laughs) And in the last two years, she was a regular in the court of King James. (laughs) The half-moon ended up as an Indiaman, making voyages to the East Indies until she was destroyed in an English attack on Jakarta in 1618. Several full-size replicas have been made, and one now sits on the Hudson River itself, run by a nonprofit that holds educational cruises for school kids. The Discovery was used for journeys in the region until 1622, when it was wrecked off of Marble Island in Hudson Bay. The marooned crew all eventually starved to death, and the ship was discovered several years later, smashed to bits by encroaching sea ice. Her original plans have have, though, been discovered and preserved, and a reconstruction still sits at the James Colony Living Museum in Virginia, as I mentioned. I've, I've been on board, very claustrophobic. You cannot stand up straight in the hold if you're my height. If you go anywhere around New York, specifically the southeastern part of the state, you cannot avoid the name Hudson. No. And that, gentlemen, is our story. Yeah, getting. I, I want to get back into what Kyle said earlier about like how inept they were. If anything, this guy is probably like the second or third best that we've talked about at what he did. Yeah. Uh, so he was really good at part of what he did. He, he could was navigate. An out, he he could, was an outstanding navigator. He, was, he, he never lost a vessel. He only lost one man because the guy did something stupid. Uh, I mean, it, as far as the return on investment, not great. Really bad with the crew. Which Not is great. kind of important. Actually, the return on investment on his first voyage was excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on his first. For the Muscovy Company, they made a ton of money off of what he discovered. Yeah, and then they uh, they put him in a boat and told him to beat it. Yeah. But uh, also, it's you've got to figure, he was going for the Northeast Passage before he went for the Northwest Passage. Um, I don't really know what the change in rationale was. I don't, I don't quite get it. That's something that, that Padre had discussed earlier. Like, does it cheapen his first voyages? And, I mean, I honestly, like, his plan at one point was, hey, guys, let's go left. That was the whole fucking plan. Yeah, I I don't know, because it's... I think he was an opportunist. 
Um, I I think he just when when he he finally reached the point where he saw that the Northeast Passage just wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. I think he went fuck it, let's try the other option. I I don't think it was. I just s- want to know why this this passage had to exist. It's something we discussed before we started uh, the record tonight. They just assumed that you could. There was a passage that went through North America, or one that went through Europe into Asia. So what you have at this it, point? They don't. Well, I have a theory. I have a theory. At the, I, I I have. Like, a, they knew what they knew what Europe looked like. It didn't have one. I have a theory at this point. You have a navigation culture that, to this point, has discovered that there is a gap between the Antarctic continent and the ice shelf down there and the southern tip of places like Tierra del Fuego and the Cape of Good Hope and the southern part of Australia. They see that there's a navigable gap there. So By the transitive property, then I think they just then assumed that up north there's got to be something This was around the same time where they believe that because narwhals existed that that unicorns definitely existed because yeah. if there was an animal at sea, there was its counter on land. Well, when and you're also vice versa. well, when you're also <laughs> talking about a mile thick ice sheet, there's no way these people could have known that the Antarctic ice sheet is way more predictable because it's anchored to an actual continent rather yeah, than, than the, the Arctic ice sheet, which is just it's completely free flowing. Free flowing. So, well, we don't have to worry about it much longer. Don't worry, Henry. Yeah. We got you, buddy. <laughs> well, that's the sad thing. In a hundred years, they might be right that it just melts for three months yeah. a year. Because at that time, there's no way they could have known that there was thousands of feet of ice underwater. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's the thing is, you can get through now even with the sea ice. Now, you got to have a heavy-duty icebreaker to do it. You mean a wooden school bus ain't going to cut it? No. uh, uh, That's the thing is... The Russians do it with with submarines all the time. So, I I have actually a question about that. Um, What was the motivation for using such small vessels for this? They were cheap. Uh, Cheap. Yeah, they're cheap. And uh, if you're an an explorer and you're doing a lot of mapping, a lot of coastal sounding, you want something with relatively shallow shallow draft. That makes sense. Now, here's what's interesting about the discovery is most of the time when you send out an exploratory vessel, you have what's called a pinnace, which is a small (laughs) vessel. Shut up. We've we've done this already twice tonight. (laughs) You have what's called a pinnace, which is a, a small vessel that kind of accompanies it. Normally, it's just towed behind your main vessel, and you use it as kind of a dispatch boat to... You can use it as a dispatch boat to get to previous ports mm-hmm. of call. You can get it. Uh, you can use it as a support vessel. You can use it as an auxiliary vessel to get to points of shallow draft. It's literally pulling a sedan behind your RV. Yes, it's probably why that's, everybody yeah, was so exactly angry. They just they just had that small pinnace, and you know they yeah. they had a lot of rage inside. Pinnace envy. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, but. That's interesting because the Discovery didn't have that. And the Discovery is smaller than his other two vessels. But it was, I mean, I guess in a lot of ways it was a good choice. And in a lot of ways it wasn't. I mean, I don't, it's a little a, a little bit of a mystery to me that he takes, he goes out in this 50 to 80 ton ship and puts 10 men on it. And then he goes out in a 20 ton ship and he's got almost two dozen yeah, guys. Yeah, that's what confused me. I mean, I guess it makes, and the problem is it's like. It's not entirely his idea, like. Yeah, the yeah, he's dealing, yeah, he is dealing with these boards of governors for these companies. So, yeah. you know. Yeah, they, uh, none of these ships were his. No. Yeah. No. I mean, no, I mean, I mean the yeah. guy was essentially a navigator. At this point, a ship really didn't even have a captain. Yeah. yeah. Now, the Half Moon was a relatively good navigation vessel, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite shallow enough. Well, uh, and I was going to say, the problem the is you have, you have two different missions. Mm-hmm. Get there where a bigger vessel would be super helpful and navigate what hasn't been navigated before where you want a smaller shallow and, vessel. And chart it, yeah. 
And the closer you get into shore, the better you can be at, at doing that second part. Mm -hmm. So that's why you end up with a vessel like the Discovery. <laughs> Plus, the Discovery had proved that it could go transatlantic because yeah. it... And actually, I, I, I didn't include this in the notes, but the Discovery was also used by John Smith off of Jamestown to do an exploratory mission in the region. Oh, interesting. It had, done, it had sailed about 4,000 miles in the course of that mission. So the Discovery had proved to be a useful vessel for exploratory purposes and for crossing the Atlantic. So, hmm. you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, no, that's fair. Maybe load it with people who don't hate each other. That, it, the, yeah. the voyage did start with a fist fight. That's... Not Probably not a, a great sign. Yeah. And that's where his leadership skills were a little lacking. He wasn't a leader. He's a navigator. I mean, it ain't exact. <laughs> I mean, it ain't the debacle of the Russian Second Pacific Fleet, but mm -hmm. it's or but or anything like that. But it's like, yeah, it's not a good sign, especially when these guys are in such close proximity. I mean, we could probably talk to Mike about how very little privacy you have when you're on a cruise on a Ticonderoga class cruiser. If the four of us were stuck in my house, this podcast would end very abruptly. Yes, it would. Let alone us with 20 other people mm -hmm. on a ship that goes from your front door to your yeah. back wall. It, it would be the four of us living on the first floor of my house. Mm -hmm. Without uh, the bathroom. It, in the cold. Yes. Yeah, it would, you know, if I didn't have windows. Yes. Crapping in a bucket. Mm -hmm. You guys would not like me. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not thrilled about you as it is. That's fair. <laughs> I don't like me. So, yeah, so that's... Oh, millennial humor. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the story of Henry Hudson. Um, flawed, but, I mean, what he pulled off up until the point where they told him to fuck, quite literally fuck, fuck off, off and die. Um, impressive, I gotta say. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, his accomplishments were tremendous. Up until the very end, his yeah. track record was pretty good. So... Yes, uh, so if you would uh, have any questions for us, comments, episode ideas, erotic fan fiction, Chris, where can they find us? You can find us at, uh, if you would like to send any of those via email, you can definitely email us at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcasttrr. Follow us on Instagram at trrpod. And you can find us on Facebook and YouTube if you simply search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Also, a quick aside, if you would like to find our good, close, dear friends at the Mariner's Museum and Park, they are located at 100 Museum Drive, Newport News, Virginia, 23606. Unfortunately, the museum is closed. Uh, the park and trail, however, are open. But also, when it does reopen, if you want to take a trip down there and check out the Mariner's Museum, not far from Newport News, up the Virginia coast, is Jamestown. You can check out the reconstruction of the Discovery while you're there. And also, the rest of Jamestown is pretty cool as well. Uh, if you would like to uh, financially support us, if you think what we do is worth a few bucks, if you would like to support our efforts to acquire the best research materials, the best equipment, and continue to build our podcasting empire, mm. you can support us at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. For as little as a dollar a month, a dollar a month, you get early access to episodes. You get access to exclusive content, and uh, and every penny that goes in through the Patreon gets sunk right back into the podcast. I can't think of a better Christmas gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Sub subscribe for the relatives you don't like that much, or the ones you really do love. Correct. It is. It's the, the gift perfect that keeps gift on for friends and enemies alike. Yes, it is. Speaking of Christmas gifts, our next episode. It's going to be the 2020, uh, 20, almost 2020, 2020, 2020, Tony, Tony, Tony. <laughs> it's going to be our 2020 non-denominational holiday special. So until then, everybody, 
Things are looking a little bit ropey out there. Yeah, Please, wash your hands. God. Touch your. Quit touching your fucking face. Wear yeah. a fucking mask. Yeah, be, put a mask on. Don't talk to anybody that doesn't have one on. Be safe. Be smart. Set a good example. For the love of God. Fucking vote. Enough of this. Enough of this. You know. Just, just, just do right by the people around you. That's all we ask. By doing right by the people around you, there are more people around to listen to us as we build our podcasting empire. Thank Vinny, you, Vinny. Vinny agrees. Vinny agrees. So, yeah, until next time, stay safe. Catch you next time. Hold fast. Hold fast.